All right, turn to John chapter 3. We're going to take a look at a few verses in John today. We're going to start in verse 16, a well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, bless your word today. We thank you for it. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that it does a cleansing work in our soul, and so we ask that it would do that now. We thank you that though every man be a liar, you are always true. May your word go forth in our lives and our hearts to do its work, that we might do your work. Amen. All right, I'm going to tell you to do something that um, I would usually discourage you to do, but I'm going to tell you to um, everyone take out your phone. Take out your phone. And I want you to place it, just place it like this in, in your left hand or your right hand. Okay, about the weight of that phone, just slightly more, is the weight of the youngest baby that was just born a few months ago and has survived. About 8.6 ounces. Just roughly more than half a pound. At 23 weeks, the, the baby's nickname, the parents didn't want the real name released, but the baby's nickname was Sabi. Um, and the mom uh, had to have an emergency C-section at 23 weeks. Um, it's been five months. The baby recently went home um, and is, is doing quite well. So 23 weeks, pretty amazing. 8.6 ounces, about the weight, a little more than the weight of your phone. Um, sadly, the U.S. has some of the loosest abortion restrictions in the world. And when you look at the countries we compare to, uh, we're right there with North Korea, China, and Vietnam. It's very sad. However, the tide seems to be turning, and it seems to be turning even with those that are some of the youngest in our midst, um, the millennials. It's interesting, a recent survey um, done by Students for Life uh, that they paid for a poll to be done, um, showed some interesting statistics. Only 7% of those that they surveyed supported abortion without any exceptions and funded by tax dollars. Only 7%. Um, that, by the way, is the official position of the Democratic Party platform. No exceptions funded by tax dollars. But only 7% of millennials support that. 
Seven of ten millennials support limits on abortion through specific policies like parental notification, limiting abortions later in pregnancy, in opposition to government funding of abortion. 65% support the right to vote on abortion-related policies, and they want a voice on those policies. 56% oppose selling chemical abortion drugs online or dropping the requirement for a physical exam because of the risks to women. And 51% said they oppose Roe when they understand that it allows for abortions through all nine months of pregnancy. So these are kind of our, our 20s and 30s year olds that are, are thinking this. And while they have probably some other moral issues that they're off on statistically when you take the polls, it seems like with regards to abortion, minds are being changed. Um, there's a simple syllogism that we can put together. It's wrong to kill innocent human beings. Unborn babies are innocent human beings, right? Therefore, it's wrong to kill unborn babies. It's pretty sound logic. It's valid logic. Uh, one of the things, though, if you've ever talked with people that might be pro-choice, is they will typically cite one or more characteristics they believe differentiate between a baby in the womb and outside the womb. And usually these characteristics fall into one of four categories. There's an acronym, maybe you've heard it before, um, to to list these four, it's called SLED. It stands for size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. So although it's true the unborn differs from a born human in these four ways, none of them are relevant when you consider it regarding these differences. Let's look just briefly at some of these categories and see how um, they really don't make a difference if you're in the womb or outside the womb. Size, that's the first one, that's the S. Um, someone is not more or less valuable because of their size. Okay. Um, people who have dwarfism, now they're referred to as short people, they're not as less valuable because they're short. Okay. Um, skinny people aren't less valuable than people who are overweight because there's more of them. No. Being bigger or smaller gives you no additional worth. A baby that weighs half a pound is still valuable. A baby that weighs three pounds is still valuable. A baby that weighs five pounds. A baby that is one week old, brand new out of the hospital, is just as valuable as a baby that's 10 weeks old, 10 months old, 10 years old. Size doesn't matter. That's the first one, S. Second is level of development. Think of baby Sabi, 23 weeks, and she, by God's grace, was able to survive outside the womb. The level of de development does not make one more or less viable. A three-month-old baby is less developed than a three-year-old baby. And a three-week-old baby is less developed than the three-month-old baby. Again, that doesn't make the baby less valuable. So that's the L, the level of development. Third is environment. 
Environment or location should have no effect on whether you are valuable. All right? Um, when you go up in an airplane, you've changed your environment, but you're still valuable. When a scuba diver goes scuba diving under the oceans, he is no less valuable than he is out of the water. Same with a skydiver. When you are plummeting to your death, except you do have a parachute, you still have value inside the plane and outside the plane <clears throat> before you hit the ground and after with the parachute you hit the ground. Location has no effect on someone's value. In the same way, a baby's location does not affect his or her value. Inside the womb, outside the womb, different location, same value. And then fourth, the degree of dependency. The unborn is dependent upon the mother's body for nutrition in a proper environment. But just think about that for a second. So is a born baby. Right? You can hear the baby right now, right? On cue, thank you, Chris and Brittany. Well done. The baby is dependent on the mother even after birth, all right? If you took a three-month-old or a six-month-old and just kind of left them by themselves, they're in big trouble. They're in big trouble. They will not survive on their own. They are still dependent. So at what age can a child be truly dependent of his or her parents? Is it three months, six months, three years, six years, 25 years? <laughs> Degree of dependence doesn't measure worth. Those are the four things. I mean, why are we even at this point that allows a woman to get an abortion for any reason at any point in her pregnancy? Well, it really goes back to the, to the passage I read, and I want to refer back to it, if you're still there, in verse 19. It says, towards the middle of it, people loved the darkness rather than the light. And let me emphasize this for all of us. All of us at one time were lovers of darkness. All right? Every single one of us at one time, was a lover of darkness. We loved the darkness rather than the light because our works were evil. And here's the thing. When you live in darkness long enough, then in one sense, nothing really starts to look dark anymore. You start to acclimate to your surroundings. All right, you go to bed at night, last thing you, you probably do is either switch off the light or turn off your cell phone, it's pretty hard to see. But if you wake up in the middle of the night, what you, you start to acclimate pretty quickly. If you've been in the darkness for a while, you acclimate to the darkness and you start to feel comfortable in the darkness. The light first goes out, you, you're stumbling. But when you've acclimated to the darkness, you start to feel more comfortable in it and more at home with it. The only lens which with you have to view things through is dark and darker. And when a door's opened and light comes in, what happens? I mean, you kind of, you're like, ah, right? 
The light comes in. You don't want the light. Listen, people love their sin. And people want to cover their sin. And they want to excuse their sin. But like I said, let's be honest. We all have some darkness in us. It's probably not heinous sin. It's respectable sin. Did you know there's such a thing as respectable sin? Sin like gossip. Things that believers tolerate and put up with. And slander and pride and envy. Those type of things. Those type of things reside in our hearts. Some have different struggles of a similar sort that they need to root out. Each one of us. So we might not be filthy on the outside, but God's concerned about what's on the inside. And some of us, we've got some filth on the inside. And the question I want us to think about, the first one is, what darkness resides in me that the Lord wants me to get rid of? You see, sinful man's bent inclination is towards darkness. We're born into sin. We're inclined to sin. Sinful man left to himself is fallen, and he can't save himself. Some of the things I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to be giving you guys some encouragements, but you can't save yourself. No one in here can save themselves. You can't be good enough, better enough, try hard enough. That will not save you. Only the blood of Jesus covering you will save you from your sins. Only you trusting in his sacrifice, turning away from the darkness and towards the light will give you eternal life. But sinful man is bent towards the darkness. But what about the believer? What about the person who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Did you know that? If that's you, you got a choice. You have a choice. See, there's different fancy names for it. I'm just going to give you the, the English, which is probably just as confusing. But man in his innocence before the fall, Adam and Eve, had the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. The ability to sin and the ability not to sin. They didn't have original sin, right? God created them in perfection. But of course they were able to sin because they, in fact, did sin. And they were able not to sin. We don't know how long they chose the second one, but at some point they ate from the fruit of the tree and chose the first. They were able to sin and they exercised that freedom. Sometimes people ask, well, if they were made perfect, like why would they choose the sin? Well, it was a mutable, a changeable perfection. Their perfection could be changed. And indeed they did. But the second state of the natural man after the fall is that he's not able not to sin. Think about that for a second. Not able not to sin. What does that mean? That fallen man can only choose sin. Well, what about the good things unbelievers do? Yeah, they do do good things. But what is the first of the Ten Commandments? No other gods, right? What's the second of the Ten Commandments? No idols, right? What's, what did Jesus tell us was the greatest commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The unbeliever, think about this and hear this, the unbeliever lives a life continually violating all three of these. Every single day. Every single hour. Every single minute. They're violating these. They're in willful rebellion to God. They're in willful sin to God. So, in their fallen state, the only thing they can do is to sin. The third state is is that of the believer, or you might call it the regenerate man. He's able not to sin. Anyone here who has trusted in Christ for their salvation, who's been regenerate by the Holy Spirit, then that's you. You're actually able not to sin. I mean, that is actually an encouragement to me. And should be an encouragement to you. Because God's cleansed you by the blood of Jesus, filled you with his spirit, and empowered you to say no to sin. You can say no. And you should say no. Because you are able not to sin. Listen, you're no longer a slave of sin. We sing the song, live the song, right? We're no longer a slave. What does light have in common with darkness? We are the children of the light. Children of the light. So let's live accordingly. The fourth one, which I'm looking forward to, is for the glorified man. It's unable to sin. Someday, God will come back. He will send his son Jesus to claim the bride. And you will get your glorified body. Hallelujah. And when you are glorified, you will no longer be able to sin. Why? Because God will take your perfected body and soul, and make it an immutable perfection. One that can't be changed. Unable to sin. Well, what about those in darkness? What can be done for them? The only thing, the only thing that can break through the darkness that traps the unbeliever is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not education, it's not logic, it's not love, it's the gospel. The Holy Spirit has to take the gospel and apply it to the lives of unbelievers. Then and only then is salvation accomplished. Then and only then will you begin to see true change. They need exposure to the light. The unbeliever needs to come to the light of Christ and be exposed. They hate the light. That's what it says in verse 20. They hate the light, but the light is the very thing that they need. They need exposure to the light. How are they going to get that exposure? Through you. Through each of you. You are Christ's ambassadors. You are representatives of the light. You are to shine that light to expose the deeds of darkness. You are to Expose it. Why? So that truth can come. So that lives can be saved. So that souls can be redeemed. 
We expose the light. We also need to resist the darkness. Look at verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. That's us. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We come to the light. We come into the presence of Christ. We come before him because we are of the light. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So we are supposed to resist the darkness. We are supposed to put to death these things which reside in us. This is the darkness that John is talking about. And we are told by Paul here, put these things to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Those deals with external things, and those also deal with internal things. Evil desire. Desires are not neutral. They are either positive or negative. They are either wholesome and good or evil and wicked. And we can have evil and wicked desires reside within our heart. We are commanded to put them to death, to rid ourselves of those things. Listen, a couple of things I want to encourage you with. One, we need to love what God loves. We need to love what God loves. Well, what does God love? In the beginning, there was God. There wasn't you. There wasn't me. There was God. There was nothing else and no one else. And yet God was still love. He was who he always was. Nothing had changed or would change. He was love. Who was he loving? Well, not you, not me. We hadn't even been created yet. We weren't on the scene. So who was he loving? God was holy and majestic and beautiful. All right? He was holy and majestic and beautiful, and he knew it. And because he is all-wise and all-knowing and full of all righteousness, he knew it was good and right love himself because a wise and righteous person loves that which is holy and God is holy so before the creation the son loved the father and the father loved the son and the father loved the spirit and the spirit loved the father and the son loved the spirit and the spirit loved the son the triune God loved. So he loves himself. We love what God loves. First and foremost, we love God. He loves himself. He loves us. 
That's why the second greatest commandment, think of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right? It's put into a, a right proportion because our love of God really should have no, no boundaries. It should be number one at the top, no exceptions, no escape clauses, or anything like that. Supreme love. Love for neighbor is put into a balance. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not love your neighbor as you love God. No, love your neighbor as yourself. So, God loves us. But he also loves righteousness. In Psalm 33 it says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we love the things that God loves. Righteousness, truth, beauty. We want to love what God loves. And even further, and this is important, we want to love what God loves to the degree that he loves it. Some things we can overlove. Is that possible? Yes. Can you overlove your wife? Yes. Can you overlove your kids? Yes. What is it called when you overlove something? Idolatry. Idolatry. You've placed more worth and value on it than it properly deserves. Can you overlove God? No. No. But you can overlove anything and anyone else. And that's idolatry. You put it into a position or place in your life that is higher than it should be. So we need to make sure we love what God loves to the degree that he loves it. Does God love rest? Yes. But do some people overlove that rest? (laughs) Yes. We need to love things to the degree that he loves them. We need to put them in proper proportion. Listen, one of my favorite theologians said this recently. He said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. God is all holy and all just and all righteous, and he hates sin. And all sin is against the character and person of God. Sin is our enemy. Think of what God says to Cain in Genesis 4. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Talking about his sacrifice. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. We get this imagery there of sin, crouching, ready to take us on. It is our enemy, and we must strike it down. We have to hate sin. We have to hate it in general, but more specifically, we have to hate our own sin. And it is so easy for each one of us to hate the sin that we're not doing. Did you hear me? It is easy for us to hate the sin that we're not doing It's easy for us to water down the sin that we do and make excuses and justification for it. We have to hate 
our own sin. We won't stop sinning in certain areas until we hate that sin. Oftentimes, we confuse our hatred for the consequences of sin with our hatred for sin. So when the person who drank too much and gets drunk and wakes up the next morning with a hangover and says they hate their drunkenness and vows not to do it again, um, they're not really hating their drunkenness. They're hating the consequences of the sin of their drunkenness. So we need to be careful when we hate the consequences and say, man, I really hate that. I wish I could get rid of it. No, we're, we're hating the consequences of the sin. We've got to hate the sin. If we hate the sin, guess what? We will do something about it. You will eradicate it, okay? If a rattlesnake is crawling around in your house, like, I hate that rattlesnake, right? And then it, it bites you. I mean, you're just going to leave the rattlesnake, let it keep crawling around? You're going to do something about the rattlesnake. You're going to get rid of it. It's dangerous. You don't like the rattlesnake, so you deal with the rattlesnake. Sure, you might obviously want to get the anti-venom and help yourself with the bite. But if you just kept doing, getting that anti-venom and not doing anything about the rattlesnake, people would be like, do you really hate the rattlesnake? You've got to hate the sin. Okay? Not just the consequences of the sin, but you have to hate the sin. John tells us quite plainly, back in chapter 3, in verse 19, and this is the judgment. Some versions say this is the verdict. The light has come into the world. Listen, God is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And guess what? More importantly, and maybe even more scarily, he's coming back to judge the church. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 17, 1 Peter chapter 4, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Did you catch that? Where's judgment going to begin? The household of God, the church. And look what it says. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I remember when I first read that as a young believer, I had to read that like ten times. Because I was like, holy cow. Like God is going to judge his church. He's going to judge it. And he even... He even emphasizes that. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment is coming for all. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear, it says. Paul includes himself. He's writing to the Corinthians, the church at Corinth. All must appear. That includes you. That includes me. We will appear before God to give an accounting for what we've done. We will either have one of two things happen. We will have Jesus there as our mediator to intervene and to say that he paid the price. Or we ourselves will be held accountable for everything we've done, and we will pay the price. Someone has to pay the price. Someone has to pay the price. That's justice. I mean, you know, that's, that's like the big word today in, in the world. Justice, justice, justice. 
They don't want justice. They want their own form of justice. But God will bring justice. He will set the wrongs right. He will give out to each person that which is due. And one of two people will receive that judgment. And it will either be you or will be Jesus in your place. No one else. One of two people. So you will either be held accountable and receive the judgment and the justice that the world supposedly cries for, the real justice of God that's found here in the Word, you will receive it. And it will not be pretty. Or you can trust in Christ for your salvation. You can trust that his finished work was enough, that he paid for your sins. And he will receive the judgment. He already received the judgment. He took your place. But it's one of two people, friends. And we're each going to be there someday. Each one of us. None of us will escape that. And it will be a very sober day in many respects. And I don't know what you're going to be doing, but I'm going to be crying out for Jesus to intervene and be my mediator at that point. And I'm going to say, Jesus, I trusted in you. Now please do what you promised you would do. Be my substitute. Make atonement. Intervene. And he will. But it's only good if you've done it here. Jesus said it is appointed unto man once to die. And then what? Then the judgment. There's no second chances. There's no third chances. And In one sense, there's a chance. There's thousands of chances. There's millions of chances. There's billions of chances. Every single second that goes by, you've been given another chance to repent. Every breath you breathe, God has given you one more opportunity to turn to him. So he gives you a lifetime of chances on this earth. But when you're done, then it's over. It's finished. And you have to make an accounting. God will call you and me and every single person to account for everything they've ever done. It will be sobering. May each of you have Christ to be your substitute on that day. Listen, the younger generation here, the tide is turning in this evil of abortion. And you could be the generation that does what the older generations have been unable to do. Stamp out abortion. Stay firm on this. Each one of us. Stand your ground. Let me just say, for those that maybe had an abortion or maybe supported someone having an abortion, um, there's healing in Jesus. The blood of Jesus covers every sin of the believer. And everyone here is guilty of crimes, punishable by an eternal death. No one is excluded. Abortion does not put you in a special category. The only category it puts you is the one that you're already in, and that's sinner. And you need the forgiveness of Jesus. You need the healing of Jesus. And he can do that. He can bring healing in the midst of sorrow. He can bring healing in the midst of pain. I've seen him do it. It's a beautiful thing. 
I want to encourage us to reflect upon where our soul is at with God. Because today he's given each one of us an opportunity, one more breath, one more second, to repent, to turn away from the darkness and turn towards the light. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. People keep pushing it off. Yesterday, my aunt and uncle celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. Very, very faithful believers. My aunt's probably the most gentle lady I've ever met. Very, very, very gentle lady. And they are very faithful servants that, in part, I'm here today because of their faithfulness. They've served the Lord for many years and have done many different ministries, including start an Awana program at their church probably 35 or so years ago that I was a part of. That God used that to hide his word in my heart. I wasn't a believer at the time, but every week my aunt and uncle faithfully would pick me up, majorly out of the way on their way to church, but they'd pick me up each week and take me to that Awana program to hear God's word, to hear the gospel presented time and time again. And many times I rejected Christ. Many times. I wouldn't have probably put it like that in my own words at the time, but I did time and time again. Offers were made. Don't reject the offer. Don't reject the offer today. Don't put it off. All right? Each one has... Each one of us has a time that God will claim our life. And we don't know when that is. We don't know. You don't know. Let today be the day of salvation. If you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, let today be the day that you truly trust him. Let him be your substitute. Let him come and take your place. Only he can do that. And he did that for you. So trust him. Look to him. Put your faith and trust in him. He will grant you eternal life. He will cover you with his blood. He will forgive you of your sins. And you will be redeemed. You will have life eternal with God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon anyone right now who's here and who doesn't know you, you'd impress upon them the weight of their sin, how there's nothing they can do to get rid of it without the saving work of your Son. And I pray, Lord, that you'd open up their minds and their hearts to see the truth of what you've done for them through your Son. That today they would trust in the work of your son. Today they would trust in Jesus. That you would give them the gift of salvation. You would wash over them cleansing. You would fill them with your spirit. The darkness they've been living in, they'd come to the light. And I pray for us, Father, us believers, whatever darkness is residing in our hearts, that we would put it to death, as Colossians say, that we would hate our sin, not just the consequences of our sin, but we would hate our sin, and we'd hate it enough 
to eradicate it. We'd hate it enough to put it to death, to stamp it out, to get rid of it. Even the respectable so-called, the so-called respectable sins, Father, we'd put them to death. Help us to love you rightly. Help us to glorify you in all things, Father, in all areas of our life, in all the things that we think, in all the things that we say, in all the things that we do. May it be unto your name. Amen.